Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Search Sky Broadband to get started. Hello and welcome to Inside Politics, the politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Pat Leahy. I'm joined this morning by my colleagues on the political team, Jack Horgan-Jones and Harry McGee. Gentlemen, welcome. In a little while, we'll talk about the politics of climate action and the political challenges facing the coalition as the Greens seek to secure the agreement of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael for deep cuts to greenhouse gas emissions in the agriculture sector. But first... The government this week moved swiftly to tighten Ireland's immigration and asylum regime when it revoked automatic permission to enter Ireland for people granted asylum in other European countries. Jack, this happened rather quickly and abruptly via an incorporeal cabinet meeting where ministers are essentially rung up and asked to assent to a decision without any discussion. And it reflects the growing alarm in government at the rising numbers of Ukrainians and other people seeking asylum in Ireland and the strain all that is putting on the state's facilities and processes for dealing with those arriving here. Just run us through what happened first. So in in the first instance, the decision that was taken on uh, Monday afternoon, uh, the first thing to note is it doesn't actually affect uh, anyone arriving from Ukraine. It's targeted rather at a group of people the government have decided are effectively abusing or misusing a pre-existing system which allows for visa-free travel for people who have been granted refugee uh, status in one of 20 European countries. And effectively, it's kind of designed to allow for a kind of temporary family reunification, seeing people that you might know from your home country for periods up to three months. And it means that if you live in one of these countries and you're in receipt of refugee status, you can turn up at the border of another country, Ireland uh, or wherever, and um, after and stay there for, for up to three months. What they've done is they've now mandated that you can't do that anymore, that you need a visa. And they, they've done that for two reasons reasons basically in the first instance um, because they feel that people are either traveling on forged documents uh, and uh, the government was told in a, in a memo that was circulated to ministers that the border management union unit is satisfied that there is instances of forgery so people just gaining access to the country and then in the second instance that people are coming here on on genuine documents, but then either at the airport not presenting those documents and uh, applying for international protection there, or at a later date at the International Protection Office in Dublin City Centre, turning up and applying for international protection there. The suggestion or the implicit suggestion being that there's some form of jurisdiction shopping going on, uh, that there are either pull factors associated with Ireland and the system that we have for refugees here, or push factors associated with other jurisdictions where people have already been awarded refugee status, push factors such as, you know, a change in their refugee status, potentially being in the offing or changing their working uh, allowances or 
you know, perhaps their their conditions of 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 residency or their accommodation uh, acting as push factors. But basically, why why I think this matters really is not so much the the kind of nitty gritty of the decision. It's more when you talk to people in government and officials in justice on 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 background or off the record, they're saying, look, this does make a, a small difference. Uh, and you know, given the pressures that the system is under, that that matters. But really, what we're at here is sending a wider signal. Uh, trying to uh, put across the message that, you know, while Ireland had kind of demobilized some of the more blunt or coercive measures when it came to migration policy, such as, you know, standing down deportations and stopping issuing negative decisions on applications during COVID, they're now starting to kind of uh, to, to, to remobilize all those different things in, in an effort to, to push that message out that Ireland is not a soft touch, all of this arising from the generalised pressure that the immigration and integration and reception systems are under, both from a huge uptick in uh, your common or garden international protection application uh, applicants, you know, your people fleeing uh, conflict or, or situations where they can't reside in their own home country anymore, and the 40,000 odd people who have come here from Ukraine, which has combined to push the system under immense pressure. Essentially, from what you say, it sounds like they are trying to toughen up Ireland's international protection stroke asylum regime in order to reduce the numbers of people coming here in the first instance. Is that it in a nutshell? I think it is. Yeah. I mean, that that I can't I can't I don't think you can separate out the fact that, you know, if this measure would seemingly only reduce the numbers on the international protection um list by about 7%, which is not massive. Now, when when you're running a system which is so close to tipping over, 7% does make a difference. But that that assumes, sorry to sorry to cut across you, Jack, but that, that assumes presumably, right, that this 7% who are now required to, uh, are now required to have visas before they can enter Ireland, that, that assumes that they will be refused visas, does it? Or it assumes that they just might not come because, you know, the the visa uh, process might prove too unwieldy. You know, um, you do have to prove, I think, that you have a, a job in, in your country of residence, that you have an inbound and outbound flight. I mean, I think it just it presumes that it's going to lower that number quite substantially and also that it will lower the number of people who are seeking to join people here who may have abused or misused that system. And, and there is, as I say, a sense in government that that is a contributory factor to, to the numbers coming on to the international protectionist. But to come back to the main point, even in the aggregate, even if you, even if you threw the kind of broadest kind of net over this possible, you're not going to come up with a number of people the removal of which is going to make a massively substantial earth-shattering difference to the size of the problem. So that's why I think you can't get away from, while it won't hurt in terms of taking pressure off a system that is very close to tippling over at any given point, as we saw with people sleeping on the floor of Dublin Airport's old terminal building, it won't hurt, but I think it's more about the signal and talking to people in government as well over Monday, Tuesday, and even into this morning, they agree, you know, this is very much about sending a signal and and putting out that message that you know um they hope will act as a as a kind of depressing factor on the number of people coming in because they're just under under such unimaginable pressure and they see it they 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 do see it themselves as quite a failure um that people had to sleep on on the floor of Dublin airport's old terminal building and you know a failure of the state to provide you know one of the one of the key factors that it has undertaken to provide to people who are in dire straits which is that of shelter you know I mean, this doesn't change Ireland's international 
obligations, right, under uh, under asylum law, under you know under international agreements that provide for states obligations to take in people who are fleeing war or persecution and provide them with a safe haven. But the assumption in government, if I'm right, is that many of the people, excluding obviously people who come from Ukraine, are, you know, to use a term that sometimes you use pejoratively and attempt not to do so, they are economic migrants and that they won't have a right to stay here under international law. But we want to dissuade them or the government wants to dissuade them from coming in the first place so that they don't clog up the system. Is that what's going on? Yes, it is, I think, to an extent. And um, you see a lot of discussion around uh, this concept of a safe European country, you know, and people arriving from a safe European country. And and I think what what is being talked about when uh, language like that is used is countries like Georgia. Um, and and that in, in the conversations I've been having over recent days, Georgia is a country that comes up time and again uh, because there's been over a thousand people, I think, this year so far applying for international protection from Georgia. And generally, I think that that's not seen as, a, as an unsafe country. And last week there was discussion about kind of effectively fast-tracking the international protection application uh, for people like this. So, you know, from, from that jurisdiction in particular and from other similar jurisdictions. So they might go through in, in a matter of months and effectively, you know, it looks like kind of be, be, be sent back. But I think what's, what's more fundamentally important here, again, rather than, than the kind of nitty gritty is it, the signal that's being sent and also, uh, the fact that the government is, is showing that it is looking for levers to pull on immigration policy that we haven't seen in, in quite some time. You know, they're not, they're not kind of like seismic fundamental reorganization where we, we, we are, as you say, in keeping with our obligations under international law. Um, and it's not the Rwanda policy by any manner or means, but it is stepping out from a long-standing international agreement um, that only the UK and France have stepped out from before of, of the signatory countries. So we're now the, the third country to step out from it. The last country to step out from under it was at the UK almost 20 years ago. So I think, I think it shows that, you know, Ireland and Irish public policy and all aspects, uh, many aspects of, of kind of, um, of, of social policy are being pushed to the pin of their collar by the pressures that are coming on from the migration crisis and from the fallout from in, in the war from the war in Ukraine and this is just another example of the kind of disorder that is flowing from that and impacting things like inflation the housing market the wider economy and should we really be surprised that migration policy is, is being revisited and shaken up and hardened up a little bit uh, perhaps not and perhaps there may be more to come and how close is that system of provision, not just for uh, Ukrainians who are fleeing the war there, but other people arriving here seeking international protection? H- how close is that system? You referred to it earlier as being in danger, toppling over. Uh, I mean, just paint us a picture of how things are at the moment. So it strikes me that it, it seems almost in a permanent case of, of, of being close to, to tipping over. You know, I was talking to somebody in government yesterday and they likened it to, you know, being in, in a, in a ship where there's water coming on and it's just coming in as fast as you can bail it out. And 40,000 people being added in to, to an already stretched system has put it under untold pressures. But the fact is that those pressures are, are beginning to tell. And you see the kind of the cracks when, you know, effectively 
you, people have to sleep on the floor of Dublin Airport because the the whole system is getting snarled up. The way the system works is people come in, they're triaged in a reception centre. Uh, you know, it used to be in Dublin Airport actually, and then it was moved to, to City West. And then the idea is that they're moved on to, to what is called emergency accommodation. Now, emergency accommodation in Ireland is by and large hotels. Yes, there is some kind of church halls and there's uh, student accommodation uh, as well. But like the, the vast majority of it is... Um, is is hotel accommodation and the idea or the 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 kind of the the plan from there had been that those people would move on again into some kind of semi permanent form of of accommodation most likely in pledged accommodation but that flow of people through the system is not proving to be effective you know so you have a situation where the hotels are fill are filling up or full and the whole thing is just getting snarled up and that's why i think you know we should get used to this kind of state of, of constantly being on, on the edge of collapse or constantly being uh, on, in, in a state of near crisis until they manage to, to, to figure out some way of improving that flow. Because as ministers were warned on Monday, it doesn't look like, you know, the, the numbers of people coming into the, the other end of that funnel fleeing from Ukraine and indeed as I say, that, that common garden international protection ap- applicant, it doesn't look like that's going to slow down at all. And in fact, they were, they were told, uh, on Monday that, you know, it could well continue at the current rate of 1400 odd people per week coming into the state seeking accommodation and protection. So, you know, there, there, there's a, there's a mismatch there between the number of people who are coming in and the number of people the system is seemingly able to accommodate. And I think that that's going to heap the pressure on government, not just in terms of solving the, the, the problem now, but more pertinently, when you look back at the modelling that was given to them in early spring, even these were the kind of numbers. In fact, they were they were projecting higher numbers than ended up arriving. So the 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 charge that would be levelled at government would be: you were warned that this was coming. In fact, you were warned that it could well be worse than it is, and you don't seem to have identified any kind of practicable solution for accommodating these people on a semi permanent basis, relying almost solely instead on expensive forms of accommodation like hotels. And and that system is now is now it seems almost a breaking point. And it's one thing putting people in tented combination of that as an interim solution, but presumably once you head towards the winter, that's not really a, a viable safety valve. Similarly, lots of people being put into student accommodation in colleges and universities now, but the students will be back in September. They'll They'll need that. So there's all these sort of pressures that are gathering in the middle distance. And I just wonder where that capacity comes from to deal with the existing numbers, not to mind the vista of, you know, 1400 people a week Mm. coming uh, between now and then. Well, I think the pressure largely shifts uh, from Roderick O'Gorman's Department of Integration to Dara Brown's Department of Housing, who were you know, it sounds like a hospital pass if there ever was one. Yes, indeed. Well, it's not not entirely unknown for ministers to ship each other hospital passes from time to time in government. But um, I suppose that you know the charge that Dara Bryan would face is that at the same time as those warnings were coming in 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 early spring and really from the start of this conflict, you should have been cognizant of this. And you know, where are all the vacant buildings that? 
could or should have been uh, identified. So, you know, there was a list of, I think it was either 50 or 60 um, large, vacant, state-owned buildings that could have been converted into kind of dormitory-style accommodation. I think that the questions that will be asked of him and his department is why haven't you made more progress on those and where are those? And, 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 and things like modular housing. And is that work ongoing now? I, I don't know, to be honest, Pat. I mean, my my understanding was that like there was a, a kind of a low hanging fruit list of places that could have been turned in to a reasonable standard accommodation in a matter of months. And then there was a, a longer term list, you know, that would be, you know, eight, nine, ten months plus. But I think the pressure is certainly going to be coming on for those kind of solutions and also for things like modular housing uh, and temporary housing. What's been interesting as well is that because the domestic or the pre- pre-existing kind of political pressure on housing has been so great. Um, the uh, Department of Housing and our Brian have been kind of looking for, for two first style solutions, which, you know, things that could be adapted for the, the, the housing crisis, the refugee crisis now, and then potentially become part of the, the housing crisis solution further down the road. I don't know whether you can actually please those two masters or whether you can, whether they're just going to have to kind of move ahead with things that are solely and bespokely for uh, the, the, the Ukrainian uh, situation. And, and of course, that begs the question and, and, and brings into sharper relief the the issue of whether this this very pressing crisis and the resources and time and political attention that is given to it necess- n- n- necessarily um, means that you sacrifice resources, time and political attention given to those pre-existing pressures within the domestic housing crisis. You know, there are trade-offs, there are political choices in all this and there are political costs in all this and political costs of sure. to failure. Um. Harry, uh, if I can bring you in, we'll we'll talk specifically about some climate stuff uh, shortly, but there's there's an obvious kind of climate angle to the refugee crisis looming in the middle distance as well. And that's in, you know, increasing extreme weather in some parts of the world is going to lead to increased flows of people seeking refuge from that extreme weather uh, into it. And, you know, particularly you can foresee the flows or the attempted flows of refugees from parts of of North and East Africa into Europe increasing over, you know, over the coming decade or so. And that's something that European countries, including Ireland, are going to have to find a way of dealing with. Yeah, I was on um, a, a trip to Africa in January 2020 uh, when Leo Varadkar was still Taoiseach. He visited Mali and Ethiopia and we visited refugee camps in Ethiopia at the time. I think there were a million refugees living in Ethiopia that had flowed in from uh, surrounding countries over the previous years and decades. And one of the things that was said at the time that I thought was very interesting was that between now and 2050, there could be a potential flow of up to 1 billion people moving from arid uh, continents like Africa, which have been affected by climate change, uh, northwards uh, to Europe and to other places. The argument that he was making at the time is that the only way that you can uh, prevent that type of uh, potentially catastrophic flow of, of people is by making the governments and economies and systems Uh, within African countries as robust as they possibly can be uh, so that people won't need to emigrate essentially and will have a decent 
standard of living in their own countries. And that's one of the big challenges that we face uh, in the next generation. But whatever happens, you know, in the in the longer term, you're going to have millions of people heading from some of these African countries towards Europe over over the next decade. And Europe's current policy seems to be very much, you know, keep them out at, at any costs, not, not alone because their electorates won't put up with huge influxes of, uh, of foreigners greater than they have, they have already seen. I mean, it's a real policy challenge for not just the EU, but for member state governments, right? Yeah, I think for any government um, that's, say, centrist or that's not extreme in either way, I, I think they have to try to find a balance between a- allowing people arrive who are seeking international protection, also allow- allowing a certain number of economic migrants to come in because they're sometimes necessary for an economy and perhaps it's the from from a humanitarian perspective it's it's sometimes the right thing to do but the problem is that you have to try to put some kind of an upper ceiling on that or some kind of a threshold and that's when it becomes problematic from a political perspective you know who plays god uh, in these situations and who who are the people who decide uh, what that upper threshold is I mean, we've had an extraordinary, uh, I mean, they, they, in a generation, I mean, when I grew up, you know, people from, from other countries were few and far between in Ireland. Now, every community in virtually every part of, of the, the country has a huge proportion of people who were either born in other countries or who were born here, but whose parents were born in other countries. So I think the demographics of Ireland is becoming more similar to that of other European countries and of America, which is one of our close comparators as well. I sometimes worry that we haven't prepared for it on a longer term basis. If you look at some of the problems that have arisen in places like Paris and places like London in relation to integration and this debate between integration and assimilation, they just haven't got it right. And uh, one of the big difficulties they had in London, for example, is that for new communities uh, with people who came from different countries, there weren't sufficient role models uh, or sufficient encouragement for people uh, to uh, become fully integrated into society. So you had uh, examples, for example, where the police force was predominantly white, uh, didn't have enough people of, say, Caribbean uh, or or, uh, African heritage in them. And they have done some efforts uh, to address that in, in recent years. And I think that we will have the same challenges ourselves, that we will have to ensure going forward that there is a, a mix and that all communities and all backgrounds are represented because one of the things that we don't want to do is to create the kind of, and again, it's a kind of a, a, a lazy term, but the kind of the ghettos uh, that we have seen uh, elsewhere uh, in, in other countries. But at the moment, we have an immediate uh, crisis because, uh, as Jack was saying, uh, you know, we have both people coming in from Ukraine, I think 40,000 in total, uh, plus a 300% increase compared to, 200, to 2019 of people coming in seeking international protection. And our problem at the moment is an acute one. We're just having difficulty finding accommodation uh, for them. But that's not a problem that's unique to Ireland. I think every European country, particularly those close to Ukraine, have been encountering uh, similar difficulties. Part of the, the thing is, or part of the issue that we face in Ireland is that for kind of a, a political generation or perhaps more, Migration policy had been kind of seen as a settled issue, uh, notwithstanding the kind of stain of, of direct provision and attempts to kind of figure out a, a way of either improving that or, or ending that. But like, if you compare it to the early the early two thousands and and the period immediately 
prior to the kind of collapse of the economy, where migration was a much more live wire issue when we had the the referendum on on uh, citizenship and, and and birth, and so on and so forth. And it was it was the kind of thing that you know um, migration policy would have been, I think, uh, prominently placed in party manifestos. I think in in the run up to the two thousand seven. Uh, general election. But after the economy uh, self-combusted, you know, economic migration became less of a thing, I think, and it became less of a kind of touchstone issue for uh, Irish political discourse. And I think that even though you see migration politics surging to the fore in the EU from 2015 onwards, because the solutions that were largely put in place to deal with that inflow of, of migrants um, were kind of pro rata, and therefore because we're, we're a smaller country, our share of those migratory populations was necessarily smaller. It, it didn't become a kind of third rail issue or very, a very, you know, resonant political issue in Ireland. And, and, and because the, the changes of the last 18 months or so have been so rapid, be they post-pandemic or arising from uh, the, the war in Ukraine, um, we're, we're struggling, I think, to, to deal with that. And I think that that's why this intervention this week is, is so important, because we see migration policy policy being revisited as something that's kind of front and center of the political uh, agenda. And then that, 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 to my mind, hasn't happened for a while. So that's why I think it's, it's new and interesting and problematic, you know. And when you say migration policy, what you mean is a policy to control numbers, deter people from coming and control numbers, because ultimately the sustainability of any migration policy is to some degree a function of numbers, right? I, I think so, yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm no expert in, in migration policy or, 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 you know, the various ways in which it might manifest itself, but like... Yeah, don't talk yourself down. <laughs> it, strikes, it's, it strikes me that, you know, it hasn't really been part of the conversation. It hasn't been something that, you know, aside from that direct provision issue, you know, the level of migration into, into the state uh, hasn't been a, a big part of the discourse. And I, I just wonder whether that's going to be um, the situation going forward and, you know, whether we're being pushed into such a kind of uh, pressure point that there won't be kind of wider strategic discussions about what exactly migration policy in Ireland is or immigration policy in Ireland is. Um, because if, if we have 40,000 people effectively stuck in hotels and no 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 proper way to to decant them out of hotels and there's 1400 people a week coming in on top of that like i mean that does surely prompt uh that or it should surely prompt you know a wider conversation about what are, what are we doing here how are we doing it how are we going to achieve it and you know what's the what's the long or medium term exit plan to a more steady state where presumably significant numbers of these people because I don't think the war in Ukraine is ending anytime soon. So significant numbers of these people are going to, you know, have to be simulated here, you know, and, and, and how does that look? And it comes back to the kind of things that the Harry was talking about, you know, um, he, he, he issued policing, uh, as a policing policy as an example, but they pop up all over society. And um, the first instance I would imagine being, you know, if these people are to enter the private rental accommodation, how on earth are they going to access that? You know, we already have thousands of people stuck in direct provision who, uh, have permission to remain in the in the country and 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 live and work here, but they stay in direct provision centres because they can't actually access the private rental sector. So you know, problems just just multiply no matter which way you look. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with ninety nine point nine percent reliable Sky broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom. Or swiping in the bathroom. 
I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Harry, I want to come to talk about climate issues. There's, um, I, I think we're at a, a particularly important point in the evolution of this government's climate action policy, but also in that process of all of Irish society being brought face to face with the changes that will be required in how we live, how we travel, how we heat our homes, how we produce our food. And those changes will be necessary if we are to reach the targets uh, that are now set down in law of reducing greenhouse gas emissions uh, by 50% by by. by 2030. And there's an important meeting going on today between uh, Eamon Ryan and uh, and Minister of Agriculture, Charlie McConlogue. Maybe just give us the background to that. Yeah, well, a a lot of it stems from the contribution that's expected of agriculture. And in the first instance, agriculture was was asked uh, to uh, impose a lower ceiling on emissions reductions than any other sector. And the range for that was set out by the Climate Change Advisory Council was between 22% and 30%. That compares, for example, with 80% for electricity and about 50%, uh, give or take, uh, for sectors like transport and uh, industry. Now, the difficulty is the the, the actual first carbon budget is a year and a half in existence Already, so it's it's only got three and a half years of its first five year cycle uh, to go, and the trajectory has been going up. And it's supposed to come. Obviously, it's supposed to come down by four or five percent a year, right? Fifty one percent between now and twenty thirty, but less in the first five years, and then more in, in the uh, second five years. And that makes sense because I mean, you can't you can't pull a rabbit out of a hat. These things don't happen overnight. So to lower admissions sometimes takes many years in terms of just changing the infrastructure, changing the planning, changing practices and all of these things, and then trying to measure them. You know, some of these things can take five or six years before they can actually be implemented. So, I mean, there's no point in kind of saying we're going to go for 30 percent in agriculture now when we can't achieve 30 percent between now and 2030. Physically impossible and will be very difficult. But if you don't do the 30 percent in agriculture, then you've got to do... An awful lot more in transport or in industry or in power generation or whatever, right? Yeah, transport is already 50%. So you probably need to go up to 70% in transport. You almost and in practical terms, sorry to keep jumping in on you, but in practical terms, that means things like more electric vehicles or fewer diesel cars on the road. And to get fewer diesel cars on the road, how do you do that? You jack up the, car, the tax on the cars to make it economically impossible for people. So... These are not pain-free options, right? No, uh, I saw a headline in one of the newspapers over the weekend saying that that every house that has a second car will have the second car robbed of it uh, if the agricultural uh, emissions are are not met. So there's kind of scare headlines like that going up. But there will have to be some very tough medicine administered in one sector or uh, another. Um, The argument over agriculture has become a kind of almost like a cultural war uh, uh, an intra, intranesine or internecine or uh, uh, war 
between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael on the one hand and the Green Party in government. And we've seen... Which brings us back to this meeting today, right? Yes. And, I mean, essentially we know uh, that Fianna Fáil, uh, the majority of Fianna Fáil TDs, uh, believe that 22% is the most that agriculture can go. Uh, because if it goes more than that, you're going to be talking about uh, culling some of the national herd. And that has become a huge uh, kind of uh, um, uh, touchstone issue uh, for a lot of rural TDs and also for farming organisations like the IFA. But the herd isn't going to be culled, though, right? I mean, it may be reduced over a period of time by way of incentives and our carrot and stick. But, you know, Eamon Ryan, no more than no more than Eamon Ryan isn't going to come around and, and drive away in your second car, nor is he going to go out to your farm and shoot 20% of your cows, right? No, but they, they will make it... Um, I mean, the, as, as you were saying, that the, the trigger point will be uh, the economic stimulus or the lack of economic stimulus that will be applied. So if they're going to go after diesel cars, uh, they will make it very economically difficult for a person to run a diesel uh, car. Uh, it'll become expenses. The taxes will go up. Uh, perhaps the fuel levies will go up. Uh, they might introduce um, congestion charges in certain urban areas uh, to incentivize people uh, to move over from diesel to electric. And that's what they did, for example, in Norway. Uh, they made it so expensive for people to buy a new diesel car that they didn't really. And then they introduced extra incentives for people to buy electric cars. Uh, sure. that, pe- pe- that They made the choice essentially a little bit easier for people. But it was still a very expensive uh, proposition. You know, it's not that... Uh, electric cars will suddenly become really affordable. They won't. They will still be very expensive. But people might be forced to pay out a little extra than they'd anticipated uh, in order to make sure that they are still mobile. In relation to agriculture, if they go for a higher figure, sure, they won't be going out uh, with the... Uh, with the um, <laughs> they won't be going out uh, and, and driving herds into slaughterhouses, uh, but they will be uh, making it uh, financially difficult uh, for certain sectors uh, within the livestock industry to maintain. And I'd say uh, they would be gearing towards look, focusing more on beef production rather than dairy because uh, beef production tends to be a little bit less efficient in general than dairy production uh, in, in Ireland. But Fianna Fáil uh, say 22%, uh, Green Party people say 30%. Eamon Ryan has been non-committal, and I, I, I think what's going to happen is that they're going to have a figure that might be a little bit above 22%, but won't be very much above 22%. The 30% that the Greens want, I don't think, uh, is, is going to happen. The, the idea being, or the potential space for the fudge there being that you can, there are things you can do on land use, such as afforestation and re-wetting, plus other aspects of land use. You can get maybe energy production on farms and they could go towards, you know, reducing the target for uh, for uh, carbon dioxide and, and, and methane reductions on the uh, in the agriculture sector. The idea being that they make contributions in in other ways, right? That's it, yeah, that's exactly it. So, I mean, it's a balancing act. Uh, but, I mean, if you look at it from an overall perspective, Pat, uh, the 51% reduction by 2030 is, is going to be so hard to achieve. And I, I mean, even at, at this stage, I think it's doubtful uh, that we will come anywhere close to 51%. And there are some easy wins uh, that can be achieved. 
and there are some practices that can be changed very quickly. Uh, but to 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 cut emissions by that much in such a short space of time, we're talking about seven and a half years. I just think is a very, very big ask. I'm not saying that it can't be done, but I'm saying it's going to be very, very difficult for us to do it. Presumably it can be done as, you know, as a matter of, of, of physics. The, the question surely is whether there is public buy-in and therefore political will to make the sort of changes that would be required to do it. That is vastly fewer car journeys, uh, you know, maybe eating less meat, um, maybe less international air travel, all these sort of lifestyle changes that, frankly, I have my doubts that there is public, back, you know, overwhelming public backing for. Well, we've seen it with, um, with the carbon tax. Uh, we've seen it with the increase in fuel prices. Uh, we've seen it with with every measure that that the government has tried to introduce to 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 try to encourage uh, a reduction in, in emissions. People do agree with the general proposition in relation to climate change, but when it beca- when it comes to specifics, particularly specifics that have an impact on their own lives, you see a marked reluctance coming to the fore. So uh, essentially, you are asking people uh, to make sacrifices, maybe not monetary sacrifices, but changes in their lifestyles uh, that will make. Uh, things slightly less convenient uh, that will, uh, you know, they mightn't be able to go on as many foreign holidays as they have. Uh, they might have to use public transport rather than jumping into a car to go to places. They might have to look at other forms uh, of of travel. Now, the Green Party are always very good at kind of presenting all that as a positive, but unfortunately, many people who are sitting in their cars uh, view it very much as a, a negative. So there's a job of work to do there to convince people that such things can work. And there are some things that will work very well. I mean, you see technology and disruptive technology happening all the time. And when e-scooters first came in, I thought they were a complete scourge and I hated them. Uh, But now I have grudgingly began to accept that they are part of the uh, solution. And if if the government does succeed in getting its network of sustainable travel routes into place, and it's a very ambitious program and it's going to take a long time, but once that's in place, say somebody who lives in my column in Galway, which is about 10 kilometres away from the city, there's going to be a greenway from my column into the city centre. So if, if they jump onto their electric scooter or onto their e-bike, they will have a traffic light free ride into Galway over 10 kilometres that will take about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be disruption free and it will be hassle free. So uh, if, if, if things like that are allowed to give a little bit of room to breathe, I think they will work in time. Plus, the government could presumably to facilitate that, give a tax break on the rain gear that you would need approximately 50% of, of the time. Listen, we're, 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 we're running out of time, but um, Jack, I just want to bring you in uh, again on, on, on a broader point, right? Because I think that this, so this meeting today between Charlie McConnell and Eamon Ryan is not expected that they will alight on a figure that they can both live with today. Um, but everybody that I've spoken to in and around government, some of whom are involved in this process, expect that some sort of a deal can be reached in time for the last cabinet meeting for the August break next week. And that will clear the way of getting the carbon budgets, the sectoral budgets signed off and uh, to be to be implemented uh, in 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 the autumn, but in a way, I think th- this this process of trying to 
find a, a, a landing ground that is acceptable to both the Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael backbenchers and to the Green Party. This is, this is the bargain that's at the very heart of this government, I think, in, in that the Greens entered government because they believed they could get implementation of climate action measures that was important enough, that was sufficient enough to make it worthwhile going into government and putting up with being in government with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, which wouldn't have been their first choice, and doing other things or not doing enough on some things that they might, uh, that they might like to do. For Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, those backbenchers that will be under pressure, not just from Sinn Féin and from independents in their constituencies, but from farming organisations uh, and, and so forth, it has to, a deal has to be bearable for them uh, as well. So in, in a way, this is a really important test of that bargain at the heart of, of government between Fianna Gael on one side and the Greens on the other. And if they can't make it, they can't make that deal stick, they can't find a deal that's acceptable to both sides that goes far enough for the Greens but not too far for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. If they can't do that, then this government's in trouble, I think. I think so, yeah. It's, it's in some ways the whole ballgame, really. Um, and, and, and also the kind of the traditional Irish political approach to climate or environment policy is kind of off the table. That is the kind of meaningless fudge, you know, the rhetorical commitment to do something at some point in the future. That won't wash anymore, I think. <clears throat> it won't wash anymore. It won't wash with the Greens. And I think that, like, notwithstanding the uh, the grumpiness on the back benches. In Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, I don't think, I, I think there's probably an acceptance at, at leadership level, certainly within both those parties that like, you know, now is the time for action on climate. And if you want your legacy to be uh, yet another government um, when confronted with the the undisputable facts of, of climate change that effectively did nothing or get the can down the road, or do you want to be the government, you know, that at least made a start on you know a framework for addressing these these problems, and and I think that questions of legacy are particularly uh, apparent for probably for Michal Martin, um you know coming to the end of his his time in the Taoiseach's chair and coming to the end of of his political career more or less. There will be another act who knows what it will be, but but like you know he's 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 you know he, he is where he is. Um, so I think all those all those factors come come to bear, and you know there's there's. Like there's important political, personal brands, and you know I think political scale will be tested in in all in all uh, for for all parties. Um, like Eamon Ryan faces a really interesting challenge here as well because he has developed this kind of tendency for a bit of foot and mouth syndrome and to become negatively associated with unpopular interventions, which can broadly be seen as as climate. And and you know he can he can sometimes say things that seem a little bit silly, and and that that reaches back in into a long history of, of the Green Party doing things that look, you know, appealing to their ecological base, you know, but, but a bit silly to the wider population. You know, remember the stag hunting bill uh, in the dying days of the Fianna Fáil uh, Green government in, in 07 or 08, whenever it was. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's the other line ministers, you know, I think there's a big test for Charlie McConnell, Oak. 
Um, you know, I think that his his political style is not one that is kind of incandescent. Um, he's more of a kind quite of the manager. Opposite, thought. Quite, yeah. quite the opposite. Yeah, you know, like I, I don't think he even he himself even would would dispute that. In fact, I was talking to someone during the week who said, you know, he's more he's more corner back than corner forward. Um, but there's a there's a place for that kind of that 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 political style, and if it's proven to be effective. You know, being more managerial than than you know superstardom. You know, if if he can achieve an outcome here for his constituency groups or or you know the the the, the stakeholders to use that awful phrase mm-hmm. with that that fall under agriculture, be they political in terms of backbenchers or farming organisations, that also achieves the the broader strategic goals of, of of edging down the path towards climate sustainability. Then I think he'll have seen to have come out of this with his reputation enhanced. If he doesn't do that, it'll be a big blow. Um, and you know. He's often one of those names that's floated as potentially vulnerable to a cabinet reshuffle, I suspect, and not because of anything he's done wrong, because he doesn't make an awful lot of mistakes, but more because he's not that kind of uh, magnetic a, a, a character. But if he comes out of this, you know, with the reputation enhanced, that, that, that I think solidifies his position in cabinet come the end of the year. So, you know, all these, all these different stakes are at play at all times. But when you take a step back from, from the kind of parlor games and the small P politics of it, like, it really matters. And, and as you say, it's at, it's at the core of, of the sustainability, uh, not just of the climate, but of the government. That's all for this week. This episode was produced for the final time before she leaves us by Jennifer Ryan. Jennifer, thank you for everything and best of luck in the future. We'll talk to you next week.